I'm trying to figure out who really killed Huey Long. Don't worry, your favorite history podcast hasn't suddenly turned into a true crime show. Neither has this one. We know who actually pulled the trigger. Carl Weiss, age 30. He was a quiet fellow who loved art and music and math and had gotten his medical degree in Paris. His wife Yvonne had recently had a baby. She was the daughter of Benjamin Pavy, a judge that Huey Long was forcing out of office. Huey claimed that the Pavy family had coffee blood, which is just the kind of racial slur you think it is. Huey had also fired Yvonne's uncle, a school principal, and her sister, a third grade teacher. It could very well be that Carl Weiss, a student of art and history, saw himself as a modern-day Hamlet, avenging his in-law's honor, knowing that when it comes to getting rid of dictators, there are very few options. Mostly one option. But if this was a true crime podcast, which I hear are super popular, just wait till I get to the train wreck that is the Kennedy assassination, I would have to speculate that Carl Weiss might just have been the patsy, the tip of someone else's spear because there were lots of people who wanted to kill Huey Long. There are few viable ways to stop a dictator. Julius Caesar and a disturbingly large number of Roman emperors were assassinated in order to end their reigns. Benito Mussolini's execution and subsequent corpse dragged through the streets of Milan and hung upside down at a gas station party was, I suppose, a modern expression of the ancient Roman tradition. Some well-timed deaths like those of Genghis Khan Tamerlane, Attila the Hun, and Adolf Hitler put an end to bloody autocrats. Once they have amassed ultimate power, legitimate means of removing them disappear. Even tangential methods, or what I like to call paper traps, tax fraud and other types of accounting or regulatory crimes, didn't hold out much hope and took way too long to suit anyone anyway. And so it came to pass in the mid-1930s in Louisiana that people started to talk openly about killing Huey Long. Quite a few of the plotters were upper-class women. The niece of the mayor of New Orleans, who often battled with Huey, said that the talk at her uncle's dinner table always seemed to be about killing him. Betty Carter, a refined upper-class woman, reminisced years later that we used to try to think of ways to kill Huey. I thought we should take a sharp nail and dip it in tetanus and stick it up in one of those chairs where he'd sit on it. He wouldn't know it, and he'd die the death he deserved, the death of a mad dog. The men opposed to Huey weren't going to be so circumspect, but some of them waxed poetic. Mason Spencer, a member of the legislature who Huey had tormented over the years, said in response to a bill Huey passed eliminating local control of elections, I am not gifted with second sight, but I can see blood on the polished marble of this capital. Which is kind of how Huey's assassination actually turned out. On our list of suspects are also the fired refinery workers of Baton Rouge, who were fond of grabbing their guns and marching on the Capitol to wreak havoc. We can also include the political and business leaders of New Orleans. Huey had passed a series of measures stripping the city of its ability to collect real estate, personal property, or liquor taxes, which deprived the city of two-thirds of its annual income. Huey made it so his Civil Service Commission had the power to approve hiring and firing of everyone in New Orleans except the mayor and the four city councilmen. The mayor couldn't even hire or fire his own secretary. The Ku Klux Klan was also mad at Huey, calling him un-American during the Klan's 1935 convention in Atlanta. The Imperial Wizard made plans to go to Louisiana to campaign against Huey, who said that if the wizard showed up in his state, he'd leave with his toes turned up. 
The wizard canceled his campaign tour of Louisiana, but maybe he wasn't quite done with Huey Long. We shouldn't forget the mafia either. No one should. Huey was in business with the mob, taking a piece of their action, gambling, protection, and likely lots of other nefarious shenanigans. Since Huey was a guy who always wanted a bigger piece of the pie, or as the New Orleans politicos once said, always wanted to trade a biscuit for a barrel of flour, it's not inconceivable that Huey demanded or took more than his appropriate share of mob money. The U.S. House of Representatives, that bunch of scary rabble-rousers, were also no fans of Louisiana's dictator. One of Huey's many enemies rose to speak on the House floor, saying that there is being forged in Louisiana today a despotism, alien in every feature to American tradition, to stamp out the flames and watchfires of democracy. A House committee was formed to investigate the situation in Louisiana and determine if Louisiana had a representative form of government as guaranteed by Article 4 of the Constitution. This move did not exactly scare Huey, at least not as much as, say, the gangsters from New York. Was Huey Long a dictator? By 1935, he controlled the state legislature, which rubber-stamped his bills in record numbers, in record time, and ignored the repressiveness and immorality of the laws he forced them to enact. Many of his opponents in the legislature, realizing there was no hope, resigned their offices. The state attorney general provided legal protection for Huey's power grabs, overriding the action of any district attorney in the state. Huey's hand-picked judges stacked the state's Supreme Court. State commissions overseeing jobs and regulations were staffed by Huey's loyalists. He controlled the local and state police, as well as the Louisiana National Guard. He appointed election officials and took away local control over elections. He ran the public school system, deciding which teachers and administrators got hired and fired. The president of Louisiana State University was a servile tool who let Huey censor the student newspaper, fire the football coach, and make sure the children of his supporters got all the scholarships while virtually ignoring the other colleges in the state. He taxed corporations and newspapers that weren't on his side and prevented ships from unloading at the port if they were owned by shippers he didn't like. The people of Louisiana saw Huey very differently. To the end, the poor people of the state believed Huey was the only person in government who cared about them. He brought them free textbooks and paved highways and promises of future prosperity that never seemed to materialize. You have to convince them it's for them, even if it isn't, Huey once said, about why the people kept voting for his measures, even the ones that worsen the economy. He could have, for example, had the profits from oil leases on state-owned land go to the Treasury instead of his own pockets and those of his cronies, which would have helped every Louisianan. But the people started to worry as Huey's attacks on the Roosevelt administration's New Deal increased in fury and volume. Huey called the National Recovery Administration the National Ruin Administration, Nuts Running America, and Never Roosevelt Again. So the administration made sure all that federal money went somewhere else. America, as it turned out, had 47 other states whose senators didn't say mean things about the president. As icing on the cake, Huey blocked a bill that would fund old-age pensions, railroad retirees, and crippled children. When asked why he did it, Huey said, I have nothing to do. I'm just having a high-heeled good time. During one of his many Senate filibusters, Huey informed everyone that he was in no hurry and had nowhere to go. A senator rose to ask if the able senator from Louisiana 
would like to have some senator tell him where they would like him to go. The city of New Orleans was the next flashpoint for anti-Huey sentiment. He had deprived the city of its usual sources of revenue, as well as its ability to self-govern. He refused to contribute any state money for welfare relief, and nearly 1,000 families fell off the welfare rolls. City workers had been fired by Huey's Civil Service Commission. City services had to stop in the wake of revenue cuts and laid off workers, so garbage rotted in the streets. The temperature rose in the city in July 1935, and so did everybody's temper. Many New Orleanans carried a gun, prepared to shoot someone, and agreed that if someone was to be shot, it should be Huey Long. A group of 200 or so of Huey's opponents in the city met in the DeSoto Hotel. Huey learned about the meeting in advance and sent some of his people to listen in, which they did by using fishing poles to hang microphones out the window of an adjoining room. The stated purpose of the meeting was to identify candidates for upcoming elections, including someone to run against Huey's friend O.K. Allen for governor and someone to see about taking Huey's Senate seat away from him. Although at this point it was clear that Huey didn't really need an elective office himself to wield ultimate power in the state. Years later, the meeting attendees claimed there were no specific plans discussed to murder Huey. It was just talk, one person said. Any plotting was little more than hopeful comments such as, good God, I wish somebody would kill that son of a bitch. But on the second day of the gathering, a smaller group of men got together where straws were drawn to see who would be the one to assassinate Huey. Carl Weiss drew the short straw. Huey's planted eavesdroppers heard about a gun and remembered Judge Pavy being there, Carl Weiss's father-in-law, but not Weiss himself. Huey took reports of the meeting to the Senate floor on August 9th, quoting one of the alleged conspirators as saying, I would draw on a lottery to go out and kill Long. It would take only one man, one gun, one bullet. Huey went on to involve the president, asking, does anyone doubt that President Roosevelt would pardon the man who rids the country of Huey Long? Future President Harry Truman, who was presiding over the Senate that day, said Huey was crooked as a ram's horn and nothing but a damned demagogue. Thanks for your input, Harry, but let's see if we can get our suspect list straight. We couldn't keep train wrecks on the tracks without you. Please visit support.historystrainwrecks.com for all the ways you can help keep train wrecks on the tracks. On the long list, pun intended, of folks who either expressed an interest or had a significant motive to kill Senator Huey Long, we have upper-class Louisiana women like the mayor of New Orleans' niece and some refined women of Baton Rouge, his few remaining opponents in the state legislature, and maybe some of them who had resigned their offices to get away from him laid off refinery workers from Standard Oil. Standard Oil itself, which, let's all remember, was a super wealthy international conglomerate. They had what you might call resources. Many of the politicians and the mayor of New Orleans. Many of the people of New Orleans. The Ku Klux Klan. The mob. The U.S. House of Representatives, but not future President Lyndon Johnson, who was a huge fan of Huey's. The United States Senate, although probably not the dismissive Harry Truman. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who knew there was a good chance he would lose the White House in 1936 if Huey decided to mount a primary challenge. And quiet, nerdy music lover and math geek Dr. Carl Weiss, who had never actually met the senator, 
and whose in-laws might just have put him up to it. September 7th, 1935. Huey had called another of his special sessions of the legislature, which of course he had no legal right to do, but he did own the governor, so there's that. Huey had turned 42 the week before, and in honor of it had 42 bills ready for the legislature's consideration. I mean, rubber stamp approval. One of the 42 bills prohibited state officials from dispersing federal funds in Louisiana if the action violated the powers reserved to the state under the 10th Amendment of the Constitution. The penalty was a year in jail. The bill was called the broadest defiance of federal authority since the Civil War. Another bill took aim at New Orleans, so to speak, requiring that the kinds of weapons used in the sort of public uprisings like the ones the square dealers of Baton Rouge engaged in, rifles, sawed-off shotguns, and gas grenades, be registered. There was the bill that would gerrymander Judge Pavy, Carl Weiss's father-in-law. The bills all passed and Huey left the chamber and headed to the governor's office, which O.K. Allen always surrendered to Huey when he was in town, the irony of which was lost on exactly no one, to give an interview. A thin young man in glasses stepped out from behind a column and shot Huey once in the chest. Huey turned and ran. His bodyguard started firing at Weiss, who was hit more than 60 times. Bullets ricocheted around the area as Huey went down the stairs to the basement. Aides rushed him to the closest hospital. People started to gather outside the hospital. Two New Orleans surgeons were summoned but wrecked their car on the way over. The only doctors available were a surgeon Huey had appointed to the state charity hospital and another supporter of his who helped overthrow the Baton Rouge police jury the year before. While these fellows may have been loyal to their patient, and likely more interested in saving him than a couple of doctors from New Orleans might have been, they were inexperienced and sewed Huey up without checking for internal bleeding. They didn't even take x-rays. Huey fell into a coma from his internal bleeding but was too weak to withstand a surgery to correct it. Blood transfusions were no help. His family and supporters gathered around his bed. He died at 4 in the morning on September 10, 1935. His last words were, reportedly, God, don't let me die. I have so much to do. Carl Weiss was the official assassin, but theories surfaced in later years that his bodyguard shot Huey by accident with all the ricochets, which naturally segued into theories that the bodyguards were in on the plot. Their job, in this scenario, was to make sure Weiss, the patsy, didn't survive, and that Huey didn't either. There was no autopsy of the body. A federal investigation found no evidence of a conspiracy to assassinate Huey. He had lots of enemies, and it only took one. And since this isn't a true crime podcast, yet, we'll see how my take on the Kennedy assassination turns out, we'll just have to content ourselves with the fact that Huey died before he could run for president, which FDR called a providential occurrence. In 1938, a Swedish sociologist encountered rural children in Louisiana, who not only believed that Huey Long was still alive, but that he was president. His political machine kept on running, controlling Louisiana politics until the 1960s. One important change was his organization's full support of Roosevelt's re-election campaign in 1936, which helped them get out of those pesky FBI investigations into their shenanigans. Politicians observe and learn, so many subsequent Louisiana leaders adopted some of Huey's style and populist message. 
The people who took over his machine turned the state into the nation's most notorious kleptocracy, using the new influx of federal money to enrich themselves and maintain their grip on power. A 1939 investigation eventually handed down 250 indictments against Louisiana state officials. Huey's candidate for governor, who won in 1936, had to leave office to serve five years in prison for fraud. He once claimed, when I took the oath of office, I didn't take any vow of poverty. Huey's brother Earl, who had been elected lieutenant governor, took over when his former boss was sent up the river. Earl went on to serve as governor in 1948 and 1956. Huey's widow took his Senate seat, which his son Russell held from 1948 to 1987. Some of Huey's other relatives got elected to Congress. Huey himself is still a Louisiana legend. He is seen as a kind of Robin Hood, a champion of the poor and downtrodden. Critics called him America's first true dictator and a fascist. His biographer T. Harry Williams called him a mass leader instead of a demagogue. The writer Gore Vidal said Huey Long was his favorite contemporary politician. Another biographer, Thomas O. Harris, said Huey was neither saint nor devil. He was a complex and heterogeneous mixture of good and bad, genius and craft, hypocrisy and candor, buffoonery and seriousness. I think this assessment is pretty spot on. And if you've been listening for a while, this should sound a lot like some of the other historical train wrecks we've covered in this show. Huey is buried on the grounds of the Louisiana State Capitol, near the Capitol building that is still the tallest in the United States. There is a 30-foot-high statue of him marking his grave that faces the building where he ruled and died. Huey's statue looks as if he's getting ready to stomp back in there and get the legislature to pass his bills without reading them. In the words of biographer Richard D. White, there is a determined look on his face, still appearing like he is very much in charge of all that goes on there, and just about to unleash a torrent of biblical phrases and foul-mouthed curses. Huey Long remains, glaring at his capital. On our next episode, we'll talk about a couple of Revolutionary War generals who somehow got the idea in their heads that they could run the war better than George Washington. Then they started to conspire to do just that. Stay tuned for The Men Who Would Be Washington, Part 1. There was a time when we used to travel the open road and pull into a highway diner and meet fascinating people, hear incredible stories, and learn about new ideas. Now I was taught at a young age that you should always sit at the counter. Not only did you meet the most interesting people, but you also got the best service and hottest coffee. Now the open highway brings that concept, not the coffee, the other stuff to a weekly podcast. Interviews, current events, news, odd stories, and more. I'm your host, Eric Erickson. I'm an author, writer, and journalist, and I've had incredible adventures. And I bring all of those experiences to the show. I know a little bit about everything, and it's just enough to get me into trouble. So join me for The Open Highway, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. (laughs) 